Hey, before we get going, I just wanted to put this out there. This show is built on a model of advertising and listener support, meaning that we depend on listeners like you who listen to the show every week and enjoy what you get to do some sort of support for the show. And we'd really appreciate it if you consider it. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Thanks very much. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. I'm Sam Manikin. Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Payne. Bill Bragoon. Helga Pedersen. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Bowman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Jarvis. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. I'm Graham Jarvis and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA, comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters, cyclepump.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear, greenchiliadv.com. This is a story about a rider that finds himself paralyzed with anxiety and fear. Not just the normal amount, but a life-threatening amount that limits virtually everything he does in life. In search of a cure, he decides finally to face the dragon head-on, so to speak. To push his fears to the limit using ways that he knew would challenge him the most. A cross-country ride following the Trans-America Trail. And on that, he would face remoteness, extreme weather, high altitudes, and difficult riding conditions. His hopes were that by facing his fears using his motorcycle, that he would gain his life and his freedom back. For the adventure, he enlists two friends to go along with him. And the plan was that he would document the trip and his transformation on that trip. Except it didn't go as planned. In fact, it went from bad to worse as he found himself unable to face his fears, unable to shake the anxiety, and unable to be honest with his friends that had committed so much for his adventure. Instead of following the Trans-America Trail, he made a sharp left-hand turn and paid the price. My name is Matthew Sturdivant. I live in Beaverton, Oregon, and I'm a writer and I do, I have a YouTube channel. Matthew, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Glad to be here. So is that what you do for a living? Your, your writing and your, your YouTube channel, that does it? That puts food on the table for you? Oh, food on the table. You didn't mention that. Mm. Uh, I have, when I got divorced, I kept the house and, uh, I Airbnb that out and it's over in central Oregon and that's, that's my main source of income these days. Oh, nice. Boy, that Airbnb thing does a lot for a lot of people. Yeah. It gives me the freedom to travel, uh, and I can kind of do my creative stuff. And, uh, if I'm honest, my, my wife has a, uh, adult job, so, uh, we can keep the lights on here, but, uh, I do have, you know, I do have bills to pay and, 
I, uh, I don't get handouts from her or anything. I do have to support my own weight. Right. Right. So where'd you grow up? Uh, mostly in a little town in Wisconsin called Hudson. And, uh, it's just on the border of Minnesota on the, on a river called the St. Croix river. And then we moved when I was 15 to Austin, Texas, where I lived for 30 years. Mm. Austin, Texas. That's quite a difference, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, it's a fun, yeah, Austin's a big party town, lots of, uh, lots of great music. And, uh, I say that Austin's a great town to grow up in unless you want to grow up because it was a party. (laughs) (laughs) So it's easy to have a good time there. Yes. And I did. Right. What what do you mean you did? Well, I, um, uh, you know, it's just, there's always a concert going on. There's always a party. And I was right in the middle of all that. I have a lot of friends that are musicians and I'm just totally flattered that I know these people who are some of the most talented musicians in the world. And uh, they've, uh, yeah, they've been a big part of my story. So I'm grateful to know them. You you spent many years um, being a photographer. Was was that what you were photographing? Was musicians? I did do uh, a lot of that. I would musicians would hire me to do their album covers. And then uh, my first book was about, it was called The Sound of Austin and it was portraits and interviews of a hundred musicians. And that book did really, really well. It it has Willie Nelson on the cover and I printed up 5,000 of them and sold them all. Wow. And then you're selling more, I'm assuming. You know, people ask me that all the time. Uh, And I hit the sweet spot of right exactly when to do it because as the digital world has changed photography, it's also changed music and it's changed radio stations. And the, the hundred musicians that I worked with on my book, they were at one time, they were all played on the local radio station. So everybody knew who they were, but over time it just became about the big festivals and less about an Austin focus. So I hit it right at the right time and everybody, you know, most of the locals knew, you know, who these people were and why they were important. But, but you'll talk to musicians in Europe and they know every single person in that first book of mine. So Mm. yeah, they're, they're really talented people. So you were smart enough to know that that's the time to quit, (laughs) you know, and that's the problem with some of this stuff, isn't it? You, you get into something and it goes really well, but if you don't recognize what's happening with everything going on around you, I mean, you could be printing another 5,000 books and then find out that they, they don't go as well. Exactly. And, and I, I, the thing I did really smart was I self-published. So I talked to a guy that did a book on the Nashville music scene and he went through a publisher. He said he made like $10 and, Ooh. and I did, um, I'm not going to give you a number, but I did really well. And it was my main income for five years. And it, you know, it helped, it was easier to buy a house in Oregon when I moved here. Cause it, it was a significant amount of money. Mm. Very nice. Where, where does motorcycling come into your life? Well, when I got my, uh, when I got married the first time for my bachelor party, my best friend said, Hey, why don't you get a a motorcycle license? And I was like, what is he up to? And we had totally geeked out on just like everybody else. We had geeked out on long way round and I, you know, that's what we wanted to, to do. And, uh, so for my bachelor party, he flew me to the grand Canyon and I show up in this parking lot and there's two shiny 
rental bikes that are uh, BMW uh, 1100 uh, RT, I think it is. And I had never, I had about six hours under my belt riding little dirt bikes. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I can't ride this thing. It's huge. You know, you accelerate and the thing rises on the suspension because the, the front, the front end lifts up. And I'm like, I'm just terrified. And I actually backed out and I rented a Ford Escort for my <laughs> bachelor party. And I followed my friend driving the uh, BMW around the Grand Canyon. It was too much bike. And I don't, I don't regret it. That was, I was way under skilled for that bike at that time. Now I would do it. I'd do it. No problem. But. Wow. You're really showing me some wisdom here. I mean, the books and then that yeah. and knowing when not to do something is really important. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. My wife is kind of an adrenaline junkie and she does things like skydiving and she's not as cautious as I am. And she's been in, you know, like three or four pretty serious motorcycle wrecks uh, and, you know, broken limbs and things. And I knock on wood, haven't had a crash mm. period. So, I mean, other than like loading my bike in the parking lot at an a off-road area or something, you know, just falling over in the parking lot. So, yeah, no, no big crashes yet. And, and what happens then? You start loading your bike up and, and doing little trips or, or day trips or something? Exactly. We would, I already had all the camping gear from, from backpacking and kayaking and bicycle packing. And so it was really easy to just throw my small tent on there and do little overnighters. And yeah, it was, it just struck me as a great way to travel because you're, you know, travel already is life from concentrate. You're using all your senses and it's, it's, it just feels like you're so much more alive than being in a car. I mean, lots of other writers have alluded to that, but um, I mean, in Jupiter's travels, he talks about that. So it's, it's, um, yeah, it's thrilling to be on a bike because you you can smell the smells and feel the weather and it's just exhilarating. So I like it a lot. What kind of bike uh, are you riding? I've got, a, most of the time I'm on my DRZ 400. I just, I'm not a mechanic. That's why I like Suzuki's and Honda's because they never break down. Um, the uh, My wife's got the exact same bike with all the same, you know, we both have IMS pegs and tanks and everything's the same. So if anything breaks, you have a, you know, a template of it right next to it. Mm. And, uh, she can rip apart a carburetor and fix it. She's, she's a scientist. She's, she's got a PhD in PhD in virology. And, um, uh, her brain is really good at, you know, taking things apart and figuring out why they're working or whatever. And then I also have a little dirt bike, a little Honda 230, and she's got a, she has a career. So she's got a fancy dirt bike. Hers is a Husqvarna 250. Mm. So, yeah. A DRZ 400 has been a reliable bike for you, obviously, because you're saying it never breaks down. Never had any. I, I mean, the only time I had an issue was when we finished the tat the first time I was dorking around in the sand dunes on the Oregon coast. So I got sand in my rear bearing and that lasted, the bearings lasted about five minutes after that. Mm. But, um, you know, nothing complicated. What, what year is your, your DR 400? Oh, it's, you know, like a 2008. Uh, it doesn't matter. It, they, they, it's they're bulletproof. And, just, and they're all the same. Right? <laughs> they're totally, the, I mean, I, it's my second one. I, the only, I've only had three, well, I guess four bikes and they're all, you know, most of them were Suzuki DRs or DRZs and um, yeah, they just run forever. And I mean, 
everything's easy to work on. They're just great. I love the DRZ 400. That, that's a bike yeah. that's always been on my wish list. I, I just think it's a great bike. Yeah. You got lots of suspension travel on that. Um, excellent for doing trails. Yep. You've dealt with anxiety through a good part of your life. When did you first notice that being a part of your life? I guess when I was in my early 20s, I was working, I, I was going to college and I had a little super part-time job. Like it was like Thursdays and Sundays and I was working at this live music bar and, um, and I remember offering like a coworker, like, man, I'll give you 40 bucks if you cover my shift. Cause I was just freaked out. And, you know, some of that was cause some, a lot of times in college I was hung over. And when you're hung over and you're panicky, it just makes it worse. Of course, the, uh, a good cure for that is to go have some frosty beverages, which just starts the cycle again. So that gets rid of uh, the hangover. It gets rid of the hangover, sometimes the job, mm. but, uh, it, uh, yeah. So in my twenties, it was, it was there a bit, but I, I mean, if I'm just flat out honest, I self-medicated for a good 15 years. Drank. I drank. Yeah. Just beer. Didn't do, get all crazy with other stuff. Just a whole lot of beer. I'd have a, a 12 pack of beer before I'd go out drinking. <laughs> so did you recognize it though, back then? Like when you're, when you're having this issue with this, this, this bar that you're working at, mm -hmm. do you, do you know that, that it's a problem? Do you, do you recognize the fact that you have an anxiety issue or that you may have some fears there that are, that are limiting you? Or what do you think of it? I, I really didn't know till, till, you know, that there's all this chaos in my head and I had to get sober first. And once I got sober, then I was like, okay, what are we, what are we actually dealing with here? And, and even then I was on, um, anxiety medicine and that helped me. But after a while I was like, I want to see what it's like to just be me. And so I slowly, slowly, slowly weaned off of that. And then it was like, okay, I've got some work to do, but you know, honestly, Jim, I, I, it took years and years for the doctors to, to be able to pinpoint what it was. Well, what is it, what does it feel like? I mean, cause you mentioned, you know, offering somebody $40 and you said you're hungover. I mean, I can see that and I can certainly see justifying it to yourself. I'm too hungover to work. I don't feel like it. Whatever the case is, pay somebody to take your shift. But what does it feel like? What, what, what are you, what are you fearing? I'm, I'm so glad you asked that because people my brother was a hang glider and he said, as people experience fear, it can be completely real to them. And other people are like, what, what's the big deal? You're afraid of heights. I'm not afraid of heights. But when you are having a panic attack, the, the way it manifests in me is racing thoughts. And then my fingers start to tingle. I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack. Breathing becomes difficult. And it just snowballs on itself and you, you feel like you're going to die. And it's, I mean, so many people are affected by this and it can come out of nowhere. I've had it get me where, you know, it's a sunny day and I have nothing to do and it just washes over you like a wave and, and you're terrified. It goes from the mental to the physical. Like you, you talk oh, about, absolutely. you know, and, and, having yeah. anxiety that's, that's mental that you're dealing with, but all of a sudden a panic attack that, that gets physical. And I can understand that all of a sudden being a bit of a wake up call for you. Exactly. It's, uh, 
you know, and we're designed to have a fight or flight response and that's good. We need that when a grizzly bear, you know, well, actually, I wouldn't fight a grizzly bear, but if a small black bear came and I needed to fight, it's good to have your adrenaline rushing and it's good to have superhuman strength for a few minutes. And it's good to have your, your physiology helping you through the situation. Um, there's times when a panic attack or, or heightened alertness can be exactly what you need to get out of trouble. But my problem is I was having it in traffic or on an airplane, being confined on that airplane. Um, if I bought a plane ticket for a month from that time, I would spend two or three weeks ahead of time imagining my demise. And, you know, the curse of being a creative person is I can, I can catastrophize just about anything. Um, imagining the different scenarios you mean. Do you want an example? Sure. All right. So my ex-father-in-law, I love saying that word, ex-father-in-law. We didn't get along that well. Anyways, he was generous at times. And for my wife at the time, for her 40th birthday, he said, hey, I've got a great surprise. And I was like, oh, okay, what, what's that? He's like, I got you guys a cruise. And so he said the word, I saw the word come out of his mouth, a Caribbean cruise. And in, in the space of a nanosecond, my brain went like this. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can do this. Am I going to panic out on the ocean? Oh my gosh, they're going to have to send a helicopter to rescue me because I'll be so freaked out. But then the helicopter might run out of gas and I'll crash into the blue green waves below. And then I'm like, well, that might not happen. But, you know, the gasoline is going to cost like $75,000 to get, you know, the, it's going to be a really expensive ticket. Okay, I'll just have to tough it out, make it to the mainland, get a rental car. But then the drug cartel is going to get me and they're going to have me in the back warehouse, which smells like urine. So my brain just runs with the, the horror story. And I don't know if you noticed, but when I told that story, I had smell. I had sight. I had, you know, I could feel the dust in the room these, the cartel was keeping me in. Um, I make it so visceral. It never even occurs to me like, yeah, I'm going on a cruise. I'm going to go snorkeling. I'll probably eat some lobster, sit in the hot tub, which is what really happened, you know? So I'll just take it so far in the other direction. And I never think like, oh, maybe it'll be okay. Maybe, maybe I'll go ride my motorcycle in the woods and not get a flat. You know, I'm always thinking... Um, about the worst case scenario. Does this just pop up on you or is it start off as something somewhat innocuous as, as you're being anxious about uh, working at this bar and then sort of get worse and worse and worse? It would be over time. I started noticing triggers and the triggers were, let's say I was climbing a mountain um, in central Oregon. If I wanted to hike up some trail, I learned that if I went, and bit off a chunk of it, didn't do the whole thing, and then did it again, went a little bit further, maybe three times, that somehow worked. But if I tried to do it one time, it was just too much of the unknown. So it was really um, freaking me out. And, and airplanes was my, old, that was the biggest fear of all because you're, you have no control. You're stuck on there like a prison cell and you can't get off and you don't have a practice plane to, you know, to try one. So... It was, that was the, the one that I really had to work on. And, and with motorcycles, it would be remote areas would freak me out or super high altitude. Cause you know, in the Colorado passes, if you're at 13,000 feet and you get a flat tire, your chain breaks, you know, bad weather, that could be a situation. 
but, um, but yeah, it took a long time till we figured out that what my version of anxiety is. And so about a third of North Americans have anxiety or depression at some point and they, they pair up well. So anxiety and depression are best friends and they like to come as a package. And, um, my version was agoraphobia. And if you don't do things to expand your world, your world gets smaller and smaller. There's agoraphobic people who can't get off the couch because they're even the inside of their apartment is too big of a world. And I certainly didn't want that happening to me. What is agoraphobia? So the way that makes the most sense to me to describe it is it's the fear of getting in a situation you cannot remove yourself from. And so that can be, I was once at a concert where it was more crowded than normal and I didn't know why. And it was because Johnny Depp came out on stage and started playing guitar. So then the stage just got, you know, super crowded. I'm sorry, the, the, the floor right in front of the stage got super crowded. And I mean, I could have, I was about to chew my way through the people to get out of there. I was full, full on, you know, fight or flight. I was going to just walk on people's heads, you know, stand up, get above them and just claw my way out, whatever I needed to do. Um, if you're out in the desert and it's wide open spaces, you know, there's nothing holding you down, but you're going to be out in those wide open spaces for a couple hours, looks like. So, um, you know, if your bike broke down and it's hot, uh, sometimes it can be a little freaky. Mm, that's, that's a pretty cruel condition, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I call it the portable one because it follows you everywhere. And, you know, it's... Some people only have it in tight spaces or crowds, and I get it in wide open spaces too. Well, it's like one of those movies that changes the rules as you go. You know, it says, oh, you're going to be afraid of tight spaces, so you go to the open space. Oh, no, no, you're afraid of open spaces. And, and of course, yeah. this is why you say you end up sitting at home in your apartment, afraid to go anywhere. Yeah, I mean, and it, it never got that bad for me. But the example that my, my therapist told, he, he confided in me that he had told my story to some people, but he didn't use my name or anything. So it was confidential or whatever. But he said, he gave an example of when I, um, if I was stuck on a chairlift uh, skiing, I mean, if it's 70 feet, like no problem, I would just jump off. I'm, I would rather break my leg than be stuck on a broken chairlift, you know, thinking that I'm going to be there for hours. The wow. panic would get so bad. And he goes, you know, normal people don't think that way. They just wait for a few minutes and the chairlift comes on. <laughs> that sounds crazy. Yeah, it does. I mean, when you, yeah. when you hear it from the outside, it sounds crazy. You think of breaking your legs to avoid sitting there and, and in all likelihood being fine. Yeah, he's, he's had such a great, it's, so it's called, the, the treatment is called cognitive behavioral therapy. And his office is a trip. Um, if you open up the drawer at the coffee table, there's like little acrylic boxes with spiders and uh, mice and things that people are afraid of. And, and then the pictures on the wall are askew because the OCD people can't stand it. And then the, the therapy techniques that he uses are the most unusual, bizarro things in the world. He, he's like, he goes, I know where every sketchy uh, elevator is in Portland, like the oldest ones that make a lot of weird noises for people that deal with that. And yeah, so it was a really interesting process to, uh, to go through that. But you have to, I had to face the fear through things that he gave me to do in his office, which were freaky. Um, one, one time he took me into the little closet, handcuffed me to a file cabinet. I'm not kidding you. Closes the door, puts a chair against the door, turns off the light, goes out for coffee. 
And I'm thinking, I'm paying this guy 150 bucks an hour for this. And uh, I was like, shouldn't, like, how is this legal? But the weird thing is it worked. So, you know, he would gradually work up to that. And then my homework assignments involved uh, going into a cave near my house and each time going in deeper, longer. And then eventually I was in there so far where you, could, you couldn't even sit up. It was so shallow and, and short. So super claustrophobic. And then I had to turn off my flashlight until I was bored. Before you felt anxiety, boredom before anxiety. No, you, you, the whole purpose is to trigger the anxiety and you have to just sit there with it. And each time that you do this, you're retraining, it's called the parasympathetic nervous system. And that's when you go into recovery. So you're walking down the trail, you see a bear, your body goes into fight or flight and you start freaking out. And then the bear turns and walks the other way. What do you do? You put your hands on your knees and you take some super deep breaths. So if you do the super deep breaths and calming yourself down beforehand, you can actually change through, through your physiology, you can change the mental reaction. And over time, you're rewiring your synapses. It's freaky, but it works. I mean, when my first session with him, he, he says, usually this takes about six to eight sessions and we're done. And I'm like, sign me up. And I'm all in. That sounds great. Mm. Now, this is sort of out of uh, out of context as far as what we're talking about in, in the story, because mm-hmm. at this point in your story, when we were, when we were talking about what you're dealing with, uh, you know, with paying somebody to take your shifts and things, it, it's a long yeah. time before you end up going for therapy. So, but, yeah. but before you get to that point, and I know that you you took a motorcycle trip that was sort of um, a, a bit of a turning point for this whole thing. Between that point and where you first started dealing with it, what, what did you do? How did you handle it? And what was life like for you? As best I could, I, I handled it as best I could. I, um, you know, I drank as long as I could and then that didn't work anymore. So I would, um, I would try to meditate, <laughs> but that can be really terrifying, believe it or not. And then, um, I, I actually put it down. I put down travel for a little bit. Um, when I moved to Oregon, it was great because you could do day trips and do, you could do a little bit of exploring, but, um, I wasn't doing longer trips and I, I just decided not to fly for about 10 years so that I could just give myself a break. So yeah, it's a bizarre, bizarre disease, but it, it affects a lot of people. And the other thing too, when people are having panic attacks, the people around them don't even know. Like I can be flipping out in my head, but still carrying on a conversation with you um, or, you know, doing my job or whatever. And yeah, I just, it's, it's a hard thing. And, and um, you know, I considered suicide, you know, at one point, uh, I think the only reason I didn't is because I had a dog and I I didn't want him to find me. And I thought, who's going to raise my dog? So it was hard. When you said you, you were drinking, sort of self-medicating, you're, you're calling it, what is being drunk or impaired? I mean, I guess after a while, you're not getting drunk anymore, are you? Just, you're impaired. What, is, what does that do for anxiety? You know, I heard a great description of this. Uh, when you used to watch Saturday cartoons and Elmer, Elmer Fudd was chasing Bugs Bunny, there's this one scene where uh, Elmer comes around the corner and Bugs Bunny... Um, he puts up his finger like, hold on a second. And, and Bugs Bunny reaches into his pocket, grabs a black hole, throws the hole on the ground and then jumps into it. <laughs> so it was this alcohol, this is amazing thing that could take away all my problem anywhere I was. 
I mean, it's everywhere. So, you know, I loved it. it. It made me feel so, I think when a normal person drinks a few beers, they feel a little better. I think somebody that's addicted to alcohol feels fabulous. And, you know, I did for a long time. And, uh, but then, you know, you know, that creates its own problems and, you know, I couldn't stop. So I had to get help. What kind of a drunk are you? If I could say it that way. Um, that's one reason why it went on for so long, because I'm like a, a pretty amicable. If people ever said at a party, like, hey, man, are you OK to drive? And I was like, well, if you're asking, I must not be. So I guess I'll just sleep on the couch. Oh, cool. I can keep drinking. I don't have to drive, <laughs> you know. Um, so I, I never got into fights. I never got arrested. I never missed it. I, I told you I would bribe my coworkers to work for me if I was hung over. I never missed a day at work. My family had no problem, no idea I had a problem. They were totally shocked. I just kept it hidden. I was ashamed by it. You're a functioning alcoholic. I mean, that, that is yeah. the difficult one. Somewhat, yeah. I mean, I was self-employed, right? So, you know, generally wake up when I'm done sleeping and, you know, being a photographer was really a pretty cush gig for a while. How do you come up with an idea of riding the tat to overcome this? I had an opening for my previous book on, uh, sorry, a book signing for that. And I did it during South by Southwest Music Festival where there's uh, tons of musicians and record labels in town. And it was an exhibit and a book signing. And I'd already done 12 book signings with concerts and all kinds of stuff, radio promotion. But this one was during the festival and there's a lot of people trying to get everybody's attention. And I was terrified nobody's going to show up. And you know what? Nobody did. Mm. And I had, so I had these portraits of these musicians on the wall. And then I thought, oh, it'll be cool to have my, their music playing on the wall. So, you know, Willie Nelson's song and songs and all these people's songs, and it would rotate on shuffle. And eventually a few people did come in and the, uh, the, there's like eight people in there and they're kind of looking at my work and talking to me a little bit. And my iPhone shuffled to a self-help book dealing with anxiety and depression by Lucinda Bassett. <sighs> I was mortified oh. and people heard it. I mean, they, they noticed what was going on. And I thought, this is the worst night of my life. I just want to die or crawl into my skin and um, crawl out of my skin. And uh, this guy comes up to me a little while later and the, the, the room has got people in it. Now there's 50 people or whatever. And he goes, hey, I love your book. And he goes, what's your next book idea? And I said, well, I want to ride a motorcycle across America. And he says, I'm a motorcycle publisher, a motorcycle book publisher. I'm like, okay, let's have lunch. So it was just happenstance. Um, you know, this guy happened to like my previous thing and, and I wanted to do that anyways. And then when I met a publisher who was, you know, he was making some promises about, you know, gear sponsorship and all that stuff. So it seemed like green light, green light, green light. So the idea to ride the tat first, was that a way to overcome anxiety or was that just to ride your bike across? Yeah, I, I thought, let's rip off this Band-Aid and I'm going to face my fears. And it just traumatized me further, really. Um, there's, there's a great book called uh, Nerve by Eva Holland. She's a Canadian that lives up in uh, uh, Whitehorse or uh, whatever, up in BC. Or, anyways, and um, she wrote a book. She had phobias of driving and her mother dying in heights. So she was an ice climber. And she, um, she had the same experience. She, she did, she did, um, she did something like 
uh, tightrope walking or hang gliding or something to deal with her fear of heights. And it just traumatized her further. Um, she did find a solution eventually, but um, it, just like me, you need to face your fears, but you need to do it in a really controlled way and incremental. Um, incremental is very key. What made you think that just facing the fear and going out and pushing yourself to sort of break through is going to be the cure? Is that something someone told you? You know, it's probably just growing up in the Midwest in America and having your old, you know, brother punch you in the shoulder and say, don't be a wuss. Just be like, man up, do it. Man up. And, yeah. you know, there's some trauma. I don't know what exactly it was, but something in my past made it to where I have fight or flight response at inappropriate times. Um, something happened where I wasn't in control and, you know, it affected me for many, many years. So talk about this tat trip. What was mm -hmm. it like? Did you ride alone? Did you go with somebody else? The first trip was two buddies and I had traveled with both of them. And uh, Richard is, I did, I got off the phone with him this morning and we're, we are such good friends. And he's put up with my weird neuroses for decades. And he knows that I have quirks and he just rolls with it. He never fusses at all. And Travis was a good, is a good friend. We, um, we, our relationship devolved over the course of six weeks on the tat. And we didn't talk until like nine months ago. And we're, it's, everything's fine now, but he was just, he was like, we're doing this kind of public thing and I want to be as manly, manly as I could be. And I'm like, dude, I'm, <laughs> I'm working on something here. I'm doing the best I can, but we were butting heads. And then, you know, the conflict with him just amplified all the anxiety and everything I had. Um, but, you know, parts of the trip were great. Parts of it were laughing and eating, you know, great food and, and horrible food and telling stories around the campfire. Um, but you said that, that he's saying that we're doing this sort of a public thing. What do you mean? What, what was the idea? What was the premise of the trip and how was it set up? Well, the, the book was, um, the premise of the first, the first attempt at doing the, during the trip. And, um, you know, I was doing social media at the time and I was on adventure rider trying to promote all that. And then I was on Facebook too. And, um, uh, just, you know, at the end of the day, I'd type a little blog about whatever we did. So if we missed any tat miles, Travis would flip out. Um, and then, um, he had a big tantrum and threw his jacket on the ground and started yelling at me. And I'm like, what the heck is this? And cause he was, his thing was like, we're going to do every square foot of dirt from here to there. Um, so now I had a conflict going on and I was just, um, it made it worse. So now I couldn't navigate. So I'm in the woods of Mississippi wondering where the heck the, why, you know, the GPS is, doesn't make, it may as well be in, you know, Chinese for all I care. I can't make sense of it because I'm just arguing with him in my helmet. And then um, as we headed west, we had some, we had issues with tornadoes uh, that kept us off the uh, dirt. And uh, when we reached Colorado, the only one of the three of us, my buddy had a KLR that he rejetted for high altitude. He's the only one that had any trouble. He's the only one that prepared for it. And he was the, his bike was horrible, even at 10,000 feet. So um, that kept us from going over the Colorado passes. And, you know, it's funny when we were at the mechanic, I was secretly like, I was frustrated and rejoicing at the same time. Cause I was like, thank God we don't have to go to those 
scary passes because you, know, you look up the mountain and it's just purple black, you know, storm clouds. And, uh, you know, I was, I was leaning on my fear as a crutch to avoid things. And um, it just got worse from there. So at that point, you think you, you think you've got a book deal or you're planning this book. The whole idea is you're going to write a book. You've, you've sort of recruited two of your buddies to go with you to do this whole project. It's going, they're going to appear in the book and obviously with all the social media to promote it. But you also mentioned overcoming your fears. So what on this trip were you going to do to overcome the fears, tear off the Band-Aid, as you said? Well, I, I knew that I had triggers such as going up to remote areas or high altitudes. So you know, riding up that mountain and just doing it. And I, I thought that that was the best approach at the time. And, um, it just, uh, my experience was, you know, I, I was able to do some of it. I did face a lot of fears, but I didn't face all of them. So the, the unfinished business is what we took on the second go around. Well, what were the fears you mentioned altitude? Um, fear of breaking down, like at high altitude, having bike issues, which, you know, we, we were having carburetor issues with the KLR. And, um, but then my fear was like, you know, we're going to be the whole, everything in my fear is I'm going to get stuck somewhere I cannot get out of. So that could be the desert out in the remote areas of the, even, even my wife on the second go round was, was freaked out. She's like, man, we are way out here and it's way over a hundred degrees. So, you know, you just ride a little more carefully and all that. So the, the fear is being stranded primarily, Jim. Hmm. And you just thought by riding it, you were going to overcome these, or did you have specific points where you thought, okay, when we get here, I have to do this? Yeah, I, I thought if I if I just ripped off the bandaid and went straight at the dragon, I would, you know, somehow find the courage, and then I'd be, um, you know, lickety split. I'm done. I fixed it. And you know, it 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 was that I did face my fears in the long picture. But it it had to be a gradual thing, and I had to I had to have some tools. Do you remember the first challenge that you came to while you're riding the tat that was facing a fear? Um. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. So so the first time facing the fear on the second thing was the um, Monarch Pass, and it was a really interesting paradigm shift. There, I was I was you know I was like here we go. I have no excuses anymore. I'm do, I'm facing it for real and I'm with my wife and she was, she was my girlfriend at the time. And, um, we're doing this thing. So I don't have any excuses. We, you know, I, we came all this way to do it and we go up Monarch pass. But the funny thing was she was freaking out. She's not a very technical rider. So the boulders on that pass, you know, you're up at 10, 11,000 feet and it's pretty pretty sketchy. And there, there's lots of, uh, your, your front wheels, like a pinball getting going left and right. And, and that stuff doesn't scare me at all really. And, um, I had to go from the dude that's freaked out to helping her freak out. So she's, we're talking on her intercoms and she's like, Oh baby, I don't know about this. She has a Hungarian accent. And, um, I, uh, I had to coach her through it. So it, it became, it wasn't about me. It was about helping her through it. So um, that was the first one. So yeah, it was like a little checklist, like, okay, this might work. And the next passes, we were nervous the day before, but man, you know, I, I talked about facing a dragon. You, you think it's going to be a dragon. You get up to the top of these passes where you were picturing, you know, dark clouds and stuff. And the dragon is like a little gecko because it's sunshiny and there's like, 
grandparents with a quad and their grandkids like chasing each other around. And you're like, oh, this is like a theme park up here. <laughs> it's really not that frightening after all. So that was the second trip to the tat though. But, yeah. but on that first one, that first one where uh-huh. you had your plan, what was the first challenge that you came up to there that were you expected and said, okay, this is a recognized challenge or I'm, okay. I'm just, so the, the first one, the, like I said, the, the Colorado mountains, we did some of them, but the scariest ones, my friend's carburetor took care of that. So now North of Moab, we went into black dragon wash, um, just West of green river. Um, the, the tat has rerouted since then, but the, um, GPS was messing up. So it's, you know, you're in this Canyon and, once the GPS was not working, my heart just sank. And I was like, well, I got to get us out of here. I was the navigator. And you just keep going forward till you got out. I mean, we, the GPS, nothing was working in the, in the roll charts that we were using. Once you're off by a two tenths of a mile, they're irrelevant. Yeah. You're completely no lost. Back. What happened at the GPS? I don't, I don't know exactly what it was doing. I, I had downloaded the, the GPX files, but it was showing me a straight line. And Black Dragon Canyon is like a, you know, super squiggly canyon. And so we rode it for a while, but as soon as I could get the hell out of there, you know, as soon as I saw high, Highway 70, I was like, I don't care what is between me and that highway. I am going to find, I'm going to figure it out. And so we found a, found a, uh, trail that led there. And then, you know, I was fully freaked out. Uh, these two British dudes that were with, that were, we met before and then joined up with again, one of those guys broke his ankle. He was behind us a little bit. And then, so we ran into them later that afternoon and he didn't know he had broken it, but he, he was next to me at a traffic light that turned red and he stops and then just went right over like a tree. Oh. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, pretty, pretty tricky terrain. That was, that was the first thing you ran over or you ran into. So how do you deal with that then? Do you I mean, cause, cause it didn't work. Like you sort yeah, of got it, yourself I, in that situation no, it, and you bailed. It, yeah, no, it was, it was horrible because I was basically from there through, so Utah and Nevada, I was so flipped out. I was just arguing for let's do highway miles, whenever we can. So, you know, the book project was quickly becoming less and less interesting. <laughs> and the, uh, my friends were getting more and more pissed at me because I would prefer 18 wheelers buzzing us on our left elbow in horrible windstorms to going off into the unknown. And in Nevada, the, those thunder, those, uh, late afternoon windstorms where it just turns into a whiteout. I was like, I can't, I, I can't do it guys. I just, I mean, it was, it was day after day of just, it was like having a panic attack, you know, all day and all night for weeks. It was really miserable. So when I reached Oregon, I was so glad to just have a different environment. And I finally started to calm down a little bit. How yeah. did you, do you deal with the, the group when you're holding everything back? I mean, think back to the one, you know, real um, momentous, uh, maybe, maybe confrontation that you had with them over this. How do you explain yourself? Well... So it's, it's shameful. It's embarrassing. And I don't want to, I don't want to be the whiny boy. So I would just keep my mouth shut as long as I could, unless it came to a decision. I was kind of the trip leader and they didn't have anything to navigate with. And I actually do have a really good sense of direction. And, um, 
So there were time, there were a couple of times where, you know, I just took the easier out of two options. And, um, but you know, also there were times like Oregon, we pretty much did all the tat. It was, it was pretty, we stayed on track. Um, but Nevada was, uh, Nevada was all highway. I was just too, I was too far gone. I actually suggested that Travis go with, so the, the two guys that were British, um, one of them was from the, uh, SAS, the British, uh, like Navy SEALs. And he was Mr. Confident, Mr. Like, like just no, no fear of anything. And I said, Travis, why don't you guys, you and him ride together and I'll just, me and Richard will hook up with you later. <laughs> but he's like, no, 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 I want to stay on the mission. And I'm like, oh my God, please no. So, um, yeah. And so I just wimped out and then, you know, that just makes you feel worse and, you know, pile that on weeks and then, and then, you know, begging your friends for mercy and, you know, sometimes getting it and sometimes not getting it. You, <laughs> you know, you they, they spent a lot of money to do this trip. Oh yeah. yeah. And like you said, it took the time off work. I mean, the commitment alone and yeah. the time, but, but you, you said that, you know, you're the trip leader and you're the only one with the navigational equipment and things like that. So did you just turn and take them back to a highway without them really realizing what you're doing? We would, we would discuss it um, sometimes. And you know, the, the tat does, um, there are sections where you are on pavement um, because you have to get from one area to the next. And, and nowadays the tat doesn't even go to Nevada at all. The gas stations have kind of dried up um, and they were too far apart in the first place. But um, now it goes up through Idaho. So um, at the time they're really far apart. So yeah, I would, so, I mean, sometimes I mean, yeah. I mean, there were times when I was dishonest with my friends and I told them the wrong route because I, was, I just couldn't summon the courage. And I mean, I've uh, since, you know, made amends for that or, or talked to them both about it. And, and Travis, who I was having the most trouble with, we have a good chuckle about it now because he's like, man, you did something braver than I did because you, you did something that was so much harder for you than it was for me. So, mm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned you didn't talk with Travis or you, you guys, you know, didn't talk for a long time. For years. For it was years. like eight years. So that um, was a big deal for him, if if not for both of you, how you felt about each other. So, yeah. I, I mean, what, what sort of confrontation? I mean, is this like you guys having a yelling match or like, how does that work? Yeah, we would, um, he was kind of non-communicative or, or pouty, I guess. And, um, yeah. I mean, we weren't speaking. There were days when we weren't speaking on the trail and I tried to kick him off. I said, dude, this isn't working out. You're freaking me out further. And you know, like, sorry, you know, thanks, but no thanks. And he's just like, no, I'll, I'll go and I'll try to be more patient or whatever. And then Richard's just a saint the whole time. So he, he's put up with so many years of my weirdness. So. Richard and Travis, these two friends that you have with you, they're yeah. on for, they know that you're trying to overcome this problem you have. They're aware yeah. of it. That's, they understand that's part of the trip. Yeah. So yeah, did you they, feel like they, Travis was kind of failing you as part of that? Because part of this whole trip, I mean, this trip is kind of about you and about you dealing with your fears. Did it feel like he was sort of letting you down because that's what he was there for? That's what he signed on for? You know, I was more mad at myself than him. Um, but there's still chatter in your head. You know, if, if you sense... You know, like if you see the two of them at the time were cigarette smokers. 
So they would be having their little chat and I would say something and I'd see Travis roll his eyes or something, you know, I'd be like, I don't know about this or we should start looking for a place to stay, you know, like in a cautious tone. <laughs> and then he would roll his eyes, you know, they had their little cigarette breaks together so they could, you know, plot against me or whatever. <laughs> but uh, it, uh, he was, you know, I think we all did the best we could. He, he was pissed off. He's, he's like, man, I spent so much money and I took time off work and you're being Mr. Wimpy. And, you know, he wanted a hardcore motocross travel across America and he got, you know, some sections of dirt instead. So. You lived through that first trip, clearly. Um, yeah. What did you learn from it when you, when you were done the trip? How did you feel? What'd you learn? You know, it was such a bundle of mixed emotions. I, I think if anything, I, I just put the whole thing down for a while. I just needed to be kind to myself because I mean, I beat myself up for months and months after the trip. I mean, I had, I still had to drive home. So the other guys flew back on an airplane and I had to drive back on a U-Haul with three motorcycles in it. And I'm, I was such a freak at the time that just, you know, just that trip and then in the car with air conditioning in the, sorry, in the U-Haul truck with air conditioning, um, that was, I would have panic attacks. I was having panic attacks on the way home and in, in that. So, you know, like, what did I just accomplish? Nothing. I'm such a stupid idiot. And, and slowly over time, my voice to myself became kinder. And one of the ways that was, was I just had to put down doing really scary stuff and start doing baby steps with stuff. Because you found out that ripping the bandaid off wasn't the solution for you. I mean, you put yourself up against it and you didn't have what it takes or it just didn't work. Whatever the case was, however you look at it, it didn't work. Yeah, that's right. It just, um, a gradual approach for whatever reason you, you, you I hear other travelers talking about this. Um, maybe, maybe it was, um, in Jupiter's travels. He, he, or I guess the sequel to Jupiter's travels, he talks about how, when you go through an area that's known to you, your imagination isn't as creative in, in the negative it's known territory. So the, you know, that's why old vintage maps say here be dragons in the unknown area because unknown is scary. So, um, yeah, I just needed to, to do it at a pace that was not freaking me out. So that didn't work for you. What, what's yeah. the next plan? I, you know, I had seen some therapists, but it wasn't until I ran into a woman that had the same symptoms as me when the light bulb went off. Well, we'll talk about that. How did, how did you bump into this woman? I was at my friend Ryan's wedding. And um, I can say, um, I'm not going to go deep here, but we, I'm friends with her on Facebook. We, we have mutual friends, obviously, because we're at a wedding and, and she's there and I'm there. But we are from opposite sides of the political fence. So I wouldn't have probably chosen to sit next to her <laughs> at a wedding. But the seats were assigned, so we sat down. And I remembered vaguely something about her saying she got over her fear. And so we started talking about that. When she said that she was fixed, I finally had hope after more than two decades of anxiety. So it's good, a good lesson to be open-minded to people that everybody has something to teach you because that chance meeting completely changed everything in my life. We're going to take a really quick break while I tell you about a couple of things more when we come back. Stay with us.
Sometimes comfort is mistaken for luxury. But when it comes to riding a motorcycle, comfort means less fatigue. And less fatigue means not only a more enjoyable ride, but it also means a safer ride because we all understand that fatigue draws us down, slows our reactions, clouds our good judgment. Comfort is really important for us riders. So when I think of the Atlas throttle lock, I not only think of the comfort I get from it, those two solid buttons with positive feedback, the ability to adjust the throttle up and down without disengaging it. The, the fact that it gives my wrist and hand a rest from gripping the throttle. Don't you notice on your, on your left hand how your left hand is always relaxed, but your right hand is clenched to hold that throttle? That's just part of riding. But when the road opens up, clenching your hand is kind of redundant. That's why the Atlas Throttle Lock is there. It takes that, that clench away from you, gives you time to relax, makes your ride more comfortable, and lessens fatigue on you. And the Atlas works so well. I mean, it's so refined in design that you tend to use it without thinking about it. You know, you just sort of expect it to be there for you. It becomes that standard part of your equipment, equipment that you can count on, I always like to say. That's the hallmark of a great product. The website is atlasthrottlelock.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, atlasthrottlelock.com. If you can't see it, then it's dangerous. On the road, I mean. The better your field of vision, the farther you can see down the road, then the longer you have to react. There's no better way to illuminate the road than with quality LED lights. Cyclops Adventure Sports is owned and operated by riders just like you and I, and they specialize in all kinds of lighting for motorcycles. LED replacement headlights, auxiliary lights, CAN bus plug-and-play systems for a bunch of bikes, very special yet affordable lighting made for us riders. They have the Evolution Safety Turn Signal inserts, which I have on my bike, and I love these things. They turn your front turn signals into these super bright white driving lights, which double, of course, as your, your turn signals as well. And then the back, your signals turn into super bright tail lights, and then stunningly bright brake lights. I mean, these things are so bright, they make my factory LED light look dim. And, and it was super bright when I bought the bike. Everyone commented on it, but these are even brighter than that. So the combination of the three is just, it, it's arresting for the vehicle behind. You can see it illuminate signs in, in your mirror, like way, way down the road. It's really, really good. And that is safety because of course, Cyclops slogan is see and be seen. And you certainly do see, and you certainly are seen with this stuff. Anyway, their website is cyclopsadventuresports.com. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in there that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio, cyclopsadventuresports.com. So the, what your idea was here now, you've had your therapy, was to go out and ride the, the tat again, this time facing those parts that you went around. You're, um, yep. As you're saying, you're, you're giving the, the navigation to somebody else. However, it's, it's somewhat closer to you because it, it's a, a girlfriend at this point. So it's somewhat yeah. within your control, but it is a bit of a leap of faith. You certainly won't be able to get, um, get out of it by just making a left-hand turn and not saying anything. You're, yeah, you're, no, exactly. You had to sort that out with her. But... Um, was it difficult? What, what, did you feel like there's more even after the therapy to, to conquer the tat that you tried to avoid before? Yeah, I still had to put one foot in front of another and there's still low level anxiety. And um, I was also, you know, so I'd had my six sessions with him, but my further instructions were to, you know, I, initially I got on a short flight on an airplane that was like a half an hour. And then gradually you go more and more. And on the motorcycles with Gabriella navigating, you know, we would do certain parts and then it would, you'd face the next obstacle, which is there's Delta Peak and um, it's 50 miles south of 
Highway 50, the loneliest road in America. And you're in the middle of absolutely nowhere and you're second guessing yourself. And, you know, most of the time I was worried, but I wasn't, you know, if my former anxiety was a 10, now I was simmering like, you know, at a four to six. And that's good. You, you need to, to do that so that you can minimize it. So now if I did it again, it would be much smaller. And furthermore, we just did our honeymoon. I had to get on it. I'd never met her family. We got married during COVID. Her family's, she's Hungarian. So her family's all over there. I had to get on the plane from Portland to Amsterdam. That's a 10 hour flight. And I would have, if you told me five years ago, I could do that. I would never believe you. And it was absolutely completely without any anxiety because I took baby steps. So what's it like for you now dealing with things? I mean, if you're going to do something that's outside of your comfort zone, your previous comfort zone, what happens? Do you, do you still feel that? Jim, it's, it's so remarkable. I, the whole world has opened up to me when that plane landed in Europe. So we, we, what we did for our honeymoon was we rode, we rented motorcycles out of Budapest and we went down to Slovenia, Croatia, uh, Bosnia, Montenegro, and rode these motorcycles all over the place. And I'm like, oh my God, if I can fly to Amsterdam, I could probably fly from Amsterdam to Kenya or from Kenya to South Africa or from Budapest to Mongolia. So I can, the, I hadn't thought that was possible for 20 years. So yeah, I, I, you know, I'd see you and McGregor and those guys like going all over the world. I'm like, well, lucky for them, they have normal brains, <laughs> but, uh, but now it's, um, yeah, it's really, it's really refreshing because I can, I have so much more optimism and, um, you know, I, I want to ride, maybe do, maybe do a trip down to, to, uh, South America, uh, from here. So we'll see. Your world has changed now. You're, you're, you're looking at things completely different. I mean, I guess the world's opened up. Yeah, completely. I mean, this is coming from a guy who didn't want to fly for 10 years. Yeah. That's amazing. You wrote a book about the experience as you'd planned to do. The book is called The Topography of Fear. When did you end up writing the book? Yeah, so I wrote it in two parts. Um, the first part, I wrote it in like 2013, and it just sort of was what it was. But then when the story became, you know, when the story had a conclusion, um, was we we did our Western Tat trip in the first year of the, the pandemic. So what was that, 2020? And, um, we, I just, when I get, when I got back from the trip, I just started writing the book and, um, I wrote it and then ran it through an editor, uh, many, many times and, um, put it out there in the world. And you're fixed now that's, that's a permanent done. Um, you know, I, I want to find out. I, that's why I told my wife, I said, I think. Ushuaia is calling me. I think that's my next project. And uh, she would maybe just fly down and meet me in different sections. She's ridden a lot in South America on motorcycles. So she would, um, she could just fly down and join me for sections. Um, but yeah, that's, I don't know if I'm totally fixed. Um, you know, I, uh, but I faced the biggest thing I was afraid of was getting on an airplane like that. So, you know, and it's not like, and I don't want my fear to be a hundred percent, you know, fixed because I, you need to be afraid of bears. You need to be afraid of snakes. 
you know, sure. like that's, that's good. That's why it's there. So, yeah. yeah. And, um, but I, I don't know. I, I mean, my, my parents are getting older and, you know, the end of the tunnel's coming up. So there'll be challenges, you know, with their mortality in mind. So that, that sounds scary, but I don't know how you test out. I don't know how you get over that one. Matthew, thanks so much. I, I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you so much. Matthew Sturdivant. We have links to his social media accounts and other things in the show notes for this episode. His YouTube channel is Giddy Up Adventures, and his book is called The Topography of Fear. We've got links and a photo of the cover of that book, as well as some other photos in the show notes for this episode, all on our website, adventureriderradio.com. If you want to have real control of your motorcycle, ride like the pros do on IMS products foot pegs. IMS has a full range of adventure motorcycle foot pegs designed specifically for what we do. They're warranted for life. They're made in the USA. IMSproducts.com is a website. Anytime you're dealing with them, throw in them that you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Hey, I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. That about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener, thank you very much. I mean, obviously, the show wouldn't be here if it weren't for you coming and listening. Thank you for that. Anyway, time to get out there and ride. Oh, by the way, let me let me first say that um, in case you don't know about it, we have another show that we put out every month called ARR Raw or Adventure Rider Radio Raw. It's roundtable discussions about motorcycle travel and a bunch of other things. It's a lot of fun and people seem to really like it. So if you're not listening to that already, you might want to go check that out. And you can listen to all of our podcasts, uh, all of our episodes rather, uh, from our website or anywhere where you, where you find podcasts. But remember that each show has its own show notes where you got photographs of the people we talk to and links to their the different things that that we've talked about in the show all on our website adventureriderradio.com and one other thing there's a couple of different ways you can support the show we would really appreciate the financial support if you drop by the website and click on support look at that anything ten dollars or more get you an adventure rider radio sticker anything fifty dollars or more get you a shout out on our raw show and the other way that you, you could help things out is to let, help other people find out about the show. So give us a, a five-star review I'm asking for uh, anywhere you find your podcast, and particularly iTunes, I guess, uh, if you're listening there. But uh, anywhere you listen to it, give if you can give us the five-star review, that helps other people find the show. And we'd really appreciate that. Uh, the other way you can do it is share it on social media, um, share it around to your friends. A- Any way at all uh, is, um, is a way of helping the show. Anyway, time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you very much once again, and I'll talk to you next week.
Hi, this is Charlie Borman, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs> 